studios of WBAA Public Radio in West Lafayette. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. I'm Stan Jastrzewski. We appreciate you listening to the show this month on your Indiana Public Broadcasting station. If you have a question you would like to get on this program, feel free to email it at any time to ask at WBAA.org. And you can tweet your questions at WBAA News on Twitter. Well, we are uh, we're taping the show just before homecoming weekend, and uh, you are not a a boiler maker by education yourself. But I'm curious what, if anything, homecoming has come to mean to you as as an adopted boiler maker, if you will. My view is that. Um I thought it was my imagination at first. There is a greater sense of spirit and community and uh, affinity, I think, among uh, uh, Boilermakers, uh, uh, present and past, than uh, than one finds at most schools our size. It's not unusual for smaller schools to have a, a passionate uh, feeling of uh, community in and uh, longstanding loyalty, but uh, I've now had enough basis of comparison and ask enough people to believe that homecoming means a little bit more here than at many, many schools of of equivalent dimension. And so we're looking forward to it. Uh, We've got uh, uh, the usual great events and maybe a couple others. Uh, You know, we're launching our 150th birthday celebration at this homecoming. It'll run homecoming to homecoming. We thought was a, a good way to set up the year in large part because we want to involve uh, not just students, faculty, and staff of today, but uh, any uh, of our graduates who'd like to come back and uh, not only for nostalgia reasons, but to learn a little bit more as, through the ideas uh, that we'll be discussing. And I'm sure that you and I on this program will be talking a lot about that in the ensuing academic year, and so we'll look forward to those conversations as well. And by the way, we should remind our listeners that if they have any questions about that or about any of the things you're going to discuss or maybe have a great idea to contribute themselves, they can email those to ask at wbaa.org, and we'll be happy to forward those on to you and to the other folks who are putting that together. I wanted to uh, ask you about a uh, a secondary education question. You and I have talked in this program about Purdue Polytech High School looking for new locations in Indianapolis. It was recently announced that you had chosen not to occupy Broad Ripple High School, which just closed a year or two ago, kind of in the central part of Indianapolis. What led to that decision? It would seem to a lot of people, I think, in that neighborhood uh, who were worried about it closing that, hey, oh, good, we can we might have another big-time tenant. It's a ready-made school building. What chose you to say no? There really was no option. It, it, it became clear. Uh, we were very interested and um, had had a lot of encouragement from the uh, neighborhood and its association who uh, I believe are very hopeful that Uh, Something educational will be at least part of that facility in the future. But it became very clear the Indianapolis School Board wasn't interested. They didn't want us there. Uh, It's a straight answer. How did you get that feeling? They were not – they were uh, fairly explicit about it in conversations they had with some of our people and with others who reported back to us. Uh, Well, it's their building and their decision – but uh, they had so many ways to uh, delay uh, through an extended decision process, and we don't have time to wait. So we decided without any rancor just to um, say that uh, we'd better look elsewhere because it, while we have time to get a place chosen and prepared. In particular, I, didn't, I uh, did not want 
this thing to linger and linger and the neighborhood be very disappointed. When So when we saw that it just wasn't going to work out, the minds were not going to meet, we thought it was best to say so and shake hands and go on our own way. And where are you on finding a spot? Well, there are uh, two or three uh, uh, attractive places. I'm most interested, and I think the board of the school, our school, uh, is most interested in going where there are uh, neighborhoods where there are uh, uh, challenged, low-income, first-generation kids. That's what we're trying to do, as you know, Stan, is to see if we can create a pipeline for um, low-income students and first-generation students, minority students, uh, to uh, uh, be prepared for the rigors of a Purdue education in in greater numbers than today. So we're looking for a neighborhood where it's convenient to to young people like that. Neighborhoods also maybe in sort of need of a pick-me-up. Yes, that would be you know certainly uh, a, an important benefit. Nothing I've I've had this experience in a different context. Uh, nothing can really uh, uh, lift a troubled neighborhood more quickly, I think, than a school that's that's well run and successful, has young people coming and going, and can serve as a little bit of a neighborhood uh, a resource too. So yeah, that that's not our principal motive but absolutely we uh, we'd love it if that were uh, an outcome wanted to talk about the editorial you wrote in the Washington Post recently saying that you think that some laws mandating different types of government transparency have have run amuck a little bit uh, you you speak uh, not very kindly about open records and open meetings laws and you say they're rendering government and I'm quoting now less nimble less talented and less effective um, let me pose perhaps the opposite side to you. Is it possible that one of the problems is that government and maybe even public education, which like Purdue and IU and Ball State are part of state government, have have gone on in some way in secret and have become used to that way of operation, and so they don't like the idea of change. I think they were, and it was a great thing. You know, the article was very plain, and I predicted people would overreact and would mis and would misrepresent and distort what I said, and they did. You know, this is a very modest proposal. I I tried to establish my credentials. Um, uh, a big supporter of these things. I've teamed with Ralph Nader of all people to make, uh, for instance, government contracting at both the federal and the state level. Uh, more transparent. And, uh, you know, in general, I'm all for all these things. uh, One of the big controversies of my first year in the last job was a sweeping ethics and transparency package that uh, at that time the loyal opposition tried to block, even walked out of the General Assembly over it. So, you know, I don't um, have any disagreement at all with the general framework of these things. All I was saying was that as someone who's been a, who's worked among those who and worked in the environments where they operate here and there um, a little more leeway would make sense i'm just saying there's a there's a downside it's not all um positive and and when um uh, i wouldn't have to go through the examples i gave but i gave specific examples of ways in which some people who um might lend their talents to the government are discouraged from doing so um about how uh, some uh, 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 people's uh, take uh, deliberations uh, into covert ways because you just can't discuss everything on the center court at uh, you know at uh, Mackey Arena. I wanted to uh, have you address, if you would, a couple of a couple of. Uh, responses because I think you mentioned people overreacting um, and when I saw the responses 
uh, and I saw and I read your editorial, it made me think about the scene from Blazing Saddles where Harvey Corman stands up and he says he wants to stomp out runaway decency in the West. Um, and, and it seems that there is some feeling of that. Um, so one of the responses came from Jerry Linozga, who's an award-winning investigative journalist. He was writing in the Indianapolis Business Journal, and he says, uh, I'm quoting him now, he says, Daniels hints that giving public officials greater latitude to have private conversations will allow frank discussions that lead to better public policy. But it is at least as likely to lead to questionable deals and corrupt activities, he says. And I got to thinking about some of the criticism you've taken here. Um, the head of the West Lafayette Redevelopment Commission said there was too much secrecy at the outset of the State Street Project. That was one local official who said something like that. There were people who wrote editorials saying that when Purdue Global was established as a public benefit corporation, that that didn't allow enough transparency. And so I think those those are all sorts of what, what Jerry's getting at there. That, well, I, that, know, I know what he's getting at, but he's never delivered a single result you know, in, in the public interest or in a public capacity. And so it just may, it just looks a little different from, I guess, the receiving end than it, than it does uh, from his uh, vantage point. And uh, once again, it, and it couldn't be more plain if you actually read the article as opposed to what some people wrote about it, that um, uh, I'm, I'm a big supporter of the basic framework. But in some cases, I think it might have been carried one step further than it needs to. And um, uh, there w there are costs associated with it. And, uh, yeah, I knew what I was getting into, touching, uh, you know, this uh, most sacred of cows. But um, uh, I thought maybe some provoke a little bit of thought that otherwise wouldn't happen. I think it did. I think that is certainly the case. Uh, one last response I wanted to put to you was from the South Bend Tribune's editorial board, uh, who said, further, who gets to decide what is too much transparency and exactly how do you make that determination? And once you begin pulling back on reforms that protect and support the public's right to know, they say, where do you stop? Where does it end? So they're they're getting at the whole slippery slope argument. And you point out at the very beginning of your argument what Dave Eggers talks about in his uh, novel uh, where he's talking about public officials who want to be super, super transparent, and that's one dystopian way of looking at it. But it seems to me the other side is you, you run toward the other side where you don't have nearly enough, you don't, even, you don't have even the reforms that you were talking about a moment ago. I gave two examples, which to me are very persuasive, of places where very good and necessary reforms went too far. In civil service, thank goodness we reformed a long time ago the old patronage system. It got to the point, however, where it's almost a joke. You, the federal government can't get rid of anybody, no matter, uh, for, for non-performance. Uh, the, the, the very worst performers uh, linger on the federal uh, payroll forever, and there's, uh, it, it's gone a step too far. Procurement is another example. With the very best of motives and very necessary – we have all we started uh, limiting the ability of people to buy things with the f public money without being uh, absolutely sure that it was uh, done in a very competitive way. And if you actually go try to do these things these days, at least in certain sec sectors, uh, you know they they can't buy anything quickly. It costs uh, winds up costing the taxpayer more than it saves, and so forth. So it's not as though one can never ever ever. Um, modify slightly what, what was a very good idea and preserve the essence of it, but also just deal with the practicalities that anything taken to its complete extreme 
I think I said in there, you know, there is a fatal dosage to water if you drink too much of it. So one last question on this. Uh, How do we get people who are in government, in higher education, to find a balance here between what's too much and what is not open enough? How How do we establish rules that allow journalists to get at documents to be able to hold people accountable, but also allow the people in power to do their job with efficiency and saving taxpayer money? Well, it's it tricky, and you just described it well. I mean, it's difficult, but uh, um, there's almost nothing I can think of in life that doesn't require some sense of balance and some judgment. And, um, you know, the, the world won't end if we if don't change any of these rules at all. But, uh, you know, once you, we've had now a couple decades of experience with, uh, with, a, uh, with a very uh, expansive uh, laws in this area, and maybe we could learn a little something from it. And here and there, just a minor uh, adjustment, I think, is it could be warranted. This is Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Purdue University President Mitch Daniels. Send your questions via email to ask at wbaa.org. Tweet them at WBAA News on Twitter. Um, we mentioned Purdue Global just a moment ago. I wanted to ask you about the recent discussion there was over the non-disclosure agreement that was kind of a, a holdover from the Kaplan time period saying that employees uh, had sort of a hard time being able to share anything that they created and there, there were intellectual property questions questions about this. Let me ask you a forward-looking question, not about that, but kind of about the general topic, which is, did this cause any sort of discussion on the Purdue side, the the, the terrestrial Purdue side, uh, about trying to find out what whether there are other documents like this that you're going to have to have discussions about as you go through the continuing melding of the two entities? Well, let's get things straight, first of all. There's two questions here. Non-disclosure, man, which is common uh, all over the uh, economy, that if people leave, they shouldn't take secrets with them. It had never been used. It was probably just, I don't know where it got started years ago. It was a a moot point and would have been got, we were getting rid of it anyway. The other part you're asking about, and some people did mix these up, and they're two different subjects, is intellectual property. We already have the same rule both places. And it was uh, misrepresented and distorted. Uh, in some of the coverage, and uh, uh, but it's a big um, uh, non-issue because um, there the people at Global are protected in exactly the same way that the people uh, at Purdue, West Lafayette, or our regional campuses are. You know, um, it's, uh, it's so ironic or striking to me. Uh, some of the people who made the noise here like the American Association of University Professors. Ordinarily, when they get involved in something, they're coming to the aid of someone. Someone has a professor, may have had their academic freedom uh, um, uh, threatened in some way or been mistreated as a matter of employment. Nobody asked for their help here. The Purdue Senate, Global Senate, said they are absolutely fine with the rules they have. Thank you, go away. And so uh, something else is... uh, uh, was involved because uh, nobody asked their uh, help and nobody asked their opinion. So one of the things that I was talking with uh, Steve Bowden, who is one of the co-chairs of a Purdue Senate committee uh, that's looking at all of the different global processes and, and ways that they do things. And one of the things he said to me was interesting. Uh, he noted that there are very different ways that classes are created, that Purdue Global, which is designed to serve lots of people at very different parts in their education, 
start with a committee of people who say, if we're going to design a class that works for as many people as possible, how do we do that? And so it's a big group effort at the start. Whereas Steve, who's a professor of chemical engineering and is very distinguished in his field, may just produce a syllabus. They say, Steve, we want you to teach chemical engineering 110 or something. And he's like, okay, great. And they may say, here are the things we need you to teach the students. But he gets to write the syllabus. And if he were to go work at Stanford tomorrow or something, he could take his syllabus with him. So this points out that there are the different processes involved in both places. You're right, but the rules are the same. So at Global, everybody owns her or his own work. If it's done in a in a group setting with the university's resources supporting it, then it, it's the university's. But that's exactly the same approach that we would take here. And some people either didn't understand it or understood it and decided to uh, muddy it up. But uh, uh, it's it's the right approach, and it's one that the faculty at Purdue Global is completely comfortable with. On to other things, you and I have talked uh, in recent months about. Uh, housing, and we started to look at the the different high-rise apartment buildings, the nice new buildings that are being put up along State Street, and there are something like 3,000 new beds that are going in, and these beautiful new buildings uh, coming online this year and next, and we started to look at the prices, and we noticed that some of these apartments are like $3,500 a month or something like that. They've got jacuzzis, and I got to thinking about you saying on this program and plenty of other places, uh, academicize, don't amenitize, and, you're, and talking about our conversation conversations about uh, all the different ways Purdue is trying to be economically feasible for folks. And so I wondered, uh, obviously, these are market-based decisions on what the people who build these places believe the market will bear in terms of uh, renting the apartments, nothing that Purdue could control. Um, What do you think, though, parents are going to see when they see these new buildings for very high rents um, near the university and they get to think about the the cost of what it's going to cost to send their kid to college here? I think they're not going to expect their kid to be in those apartments. I think those apartments will be filled with um, adults. Uh, You don't think students are going to occupy them? I don't know that none ever will. If they do, you know, it'll be because they can afford it. But, uh, you know, we're working on having uh, affordable, typical student housing. No, these – the people putting these things up – I haven't seen a a rent quite this high as you mentioned, but they're high, higher certainly than student housing. And – uh, you know, if they think they can uh, find, uh, it, maybe it's faculty or staff or others, there are going to be probably some more coming, but they're not aimed at students. As I think you know, uh, five years ago, we had the second most expensive room and board in the Big Ten at Purdue, and now we're the least expensive. And um, uh, we have more uh, capacity coming at those prices. So in terms of our students and certainly anything we are uh, um, offering or making or providing, uh, affordability will be uh, will be job one. Oh, and I think that's a perfectly reasonable argument to make. Uh, it is clearly going to be cheaper to have room and board on campus. That seems unarguable. Um, you have talked on this program about needing more bedrooms for students, needing to build more residence halls in the coming years, and you need some burden to be taken off of your housing capacity uh, due to an unexpectedly large freshman class this year and larger than previous classes the last couple So as these 2,000, 3,000 beds come online, it would seem like you could use the help of of having to take some of that housing burden off, though, right? Yeah, we don't know how it'll work. Um, You know, I keep looking at all that thinking maybe somebody's going to build one building too many. Um, The ones that that we'll be uh, building or expanding uh, on or on the uh, the campus, um, I think are going to be 
because of location, uh, principally, much more attractive, certainly to students, and probably to some staff and faculty. So it could be that someone who's building a nice place a few blocks or more away is, is the one who uh, may have an overcapacity problem at some point. But these these are folks whose profession is to size up the market. This is a growing market. The, the Lafayette, Greater Lafayette uh, um, metro area, as you know, is the second fastest growing in the state economy. I think Purdue is a central reason for that. We think that's a central reason um, for our being. One of the faster growing areas in the country, I'm letting yes, you understand. Yes, it is. And I guess seasoned professionals looking at that have decided that there's lots of demand. You know, it has been there has been an issue. We'll frequently have faculty or people we're trying to recruit who are faced, they can't find a a, a living accommodation that uh, that fits their situation or their uh, family's uh, uh, preferences here, and they have to decide about living at a distance and commuting. And uh, so I think there's clearly a demand for some of this, and the question is, will, will, will the supply rise to meet it or overshoot, or we'll see. One last housing thing that I wanted to talk to about before we move on is you and I talked on last month's program. I had asked you if the incoming freshman class was going to stretch the housing ability, and you you lauded the creativity, you said, of your housing folks who found different places to accommodate a much larger-than-expected freshman class. And then there were some pictures that got circulated on Instagram and other social media of students living like in converted meeting spaces and adjacent to loading docks and things like that. And I talked to Beth McCuskey, who, who works with us on campus, and she pointed out the school was renting some 600 off-campus apartments as well. Uh, is it fair to say you've got a you've got a kind of multifaceted housing problem here? Uh, there were 121 students in temporary housing out of a student body of 30 some thousand. So that's we'd rather it was zero, but that's I mean IU for some reason people were fascinated by our problem, but IU had more people in temporary housing than we did, and they still must because we're down to nine last I looked, and that's a week ago. So, um, uh, by the way, we had uh, one group of ten who liked the temporary housing so much they petitioned not to be relocated when when we had space for them. And, so, and Beth mentioned them too, but, but to be fair, they're in the minority. I think most people want to be moved to a real room. I'm just saying uh, it was a tiny percentage of our students, and uh, and uh, we moved on. We moved to accommodate them as fast as we could. You know, there was some nonsense here, um, and it, people talked about in some kind of investigation. Never happened, and uh, uh, so this the subject I think has been a, a little bit uh, over uh, reported, but. Um, um, we're, we'd, I guess I'd, we'd rather have the problem of scrambling to find places for the last hundred than um, lots of empty space as so many places have. Uh, on to a couple of other things. Uh, you did an interview with Bloomberg earlier this month uh, where you said that uh, President Trump, in your words, deserves great credit for the state of the U.S. economy. And you pointed out that his tax plan is giving people back some more money in their paychecks each month. That's certainly happening. And you also alluded to the fact that there are economists who say the long-term benefits of that might be a little bit shaky in, in terms of how they affect the economy. You've talked a lot about how national debt is a big problem, and that's been one of the issues you're hoping to help get 
give your expertise to solving. Um, so I wonder, you know, if if you're if you're looking at talking to you know students who are thinking about how to judge the economy, students who are going to go out into the economy and who are going to be potentially operating under this. If there is a short-term gain, but there's a potential trillion-dollar addition to the debt down the line, um, it seems like the arguing that there's a short-term gain is a little ephemeral, is it not? Well, the person asked – it's an economic show, a business, sure. business show. The guy asked me a very specific question. Do the Trump policies – he says the economy is doing really well. Do, do these policies have something to do with it? I said yes. I don't think there, I don't think there's any other way to read the economic data. He did inherit a good economy. He did not, and uh, been staggering along at two percent for several years. It's doc. It's uh, demonstrably the slowest and weakest recovery, especially from a deep recession that we've ever seen. So, you know, that's but that's something that hundreds of economists have said now. And I went on quickly to point out that uh, don't know how long this will last, and there may be uh, downsides uh, here too. <laughs> a balancing question: There may be downsides long term. Um, not just from uh, that, uh, from let's say that tax bill, but uh, but uh, from the uh, equally large or larger spending increase that uh, both sides in the Congress cheerfully got together and passed. So, um, you know, ask get asked a straight question, try to give a direct answer, and um, uh, but let's uh, let's hope that uh, for all kinds of reasons that the strong economy persists for a long time. Because uh, nothing the the nation could uh, use more. On to a question that's been asked uh, in other corners of the state, and I wanted to find out how Purdue could figure into it. There's been a lot of talk in recent weeks here and elsewhere about candidates in this year's election. And I have to say, a lot of it has been circling around Republican incumbent candidates ducking debates. And I noticed that our public radio colleagues down in Bloomington had recently talked with Kyle Hupfer, the state Republican Party chair, about whether there was any sort of directive that might be a good campaign decision uh, where there are safe seats to not have too many debates. And he indicated that, yes, there was, in fact, advice given from the state party to candidates about that. Um, I wanted to know, as, as someone who's now leading young people to be good citizens and take part, uh, you talk every single election about how to be a good part of the world that these graduates are entering. Um, do Purdue students have a right to expect more of their candidates than that? I think so. I mean, uh, Purdue students, I mean, citizens in general, um, I know I, I had one experience in elected office and uh, debated it in each of the three elections, a, a primary and two general elections that I was in, just saw it as a responsible thing to do and uh, didn't, didn't really have any arguments about it. I'm happy to tell you that uh, one of the uh, uh, Senate uh, debates is going to take place at Purdue Northwest. I'm not sure if uh, if that word had reached you yet, but uh, yeah, our our campus at Westfield is going to play host to uh, one of the uh, two or three mm -hmm. debates in the state. And uh, talking to our chancellor up there, the uh, uh, tickets uh, available uh, tickets went 
in a rush, and so there'll be a, it'll be a big event, and I hope a, one that adds to the public's understanding. That was going to be my next question for you, is right above us where we tape is the giant stage at the Elliott Hall of Music. Could easily accommodate any size debate crowd that came in, whether it's for a local race or for a big state race like the race between uh, Senator Donnelly and Mike Braun. Um, is there a way in, in 15 or 20 or seconds that, that Purdue could be more, uh, more of an advocate of saying, hey, please use our space for this sort of civic discussion? Yeah, sure. Could happen sometime. You know, I was talked into being on the Commission on Presidential Debates and, and served a, a, a short term there. Um, and I will say this, uh, holding one of those sounds like a good idea, but it costs the host university generally a lot of money. And so don't look for us to bid on those. But uh, something, you know, involving the state, uh, sure, why not? All right. Well, this has been Indiana Public Broadcasting's monthly conversation with Mitch Daniels. Mr. President, thanks as always for your time. Thank you. We'll do it again next month. And remember, you can find all of these shows archived at WBAA.org. You can send an email to ask at WBAA.org, and we'll be sure to get that on next month's program. I'm Stan Dostrebsky. Enjoy the rest of your day. Support for the monthly conversation with Mitch Daniels comes from Purdue University Press, publishing global scholarship and popular regional work since 1960 and featuring the fifth edition of Creating Moments of Joy Along the Alzheimer's Journey, now available. More at thepress.purdue.edu.